Okay, if you would please turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. I will be reading 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And Father, I trust that because of and through and only through the sacrificial death of Your Son, the only mediator between us sinful humans and Yourself, that this prayer will not be hindered. That You will work this glorious doctrine of sanctification, growing in holiness in Christ for those who are Yours, You will do it because we're here. You will do it through the words of this text. You will do it mind-bogglingly, mercifully, through what I have to say of this text. In Jesus' name. Amen. This is week four on this short little series coming from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 of males, females, husbands, wives, roles in marriage. And just because of that, by definition, we, if we're taking biblical text seriously, we're just going directly against the stream of our culture. For, for, for us, we're going to see this morning is men and for us who are raising boys, that they don't remain boys, but they grow into men. It's really, really difficult in our culture. A few years ago, best-selling book by Christina Hoff Summers, War on Boys, titled. It's subtitled, How Misguided Feminism is Harming Our Young Men. And it is because the culture that we live in. Let me just give you an example. Just picking up the newspaper this week, Wednesday's Daily Breeze in the op-ed. Let me just quote a little bit. That's all you got to do just pick up the paper and see what's going on in the world. The latest example, uh, this is not from a Christian person either. Uh, the latest example in, in our culture occurred this month in New York State when Attorney General Andrew Cuomo forced American Eagle Outfitters, a private company, to rescind its right to enforce a dress code among its employees. This code included a ban on male employees from wearing dresses or other women's clothing and a ban on women employees from dressing as men. Can you get it? They said, you want to work for us? You're a man? You can dress as a man when you come to work. The Attorney General says, no, you can't do that. It's discrimination. Last year, quote, 
the Civil Rights Commission of the State of Maine asked that no schools should insist that biological males use only boys' or men's room, uh, rooms or restrooms in schools. From elementary school on, every student in Maine should be allowed to determine if he feels male or female and enter whichever bathroom matches. The Maine Commission also called for a ban on schools from enforcing gender divisions in sports teams, in school organizations, and in locker rooms. It says forcing a student into a particular room or group because of his or her gender amounts to discrimination. And finally, in other words, in our culture, there are many, quote, who are seeking, and this is what we've been talking about for three weeks so far, they're seeking to obliterate the distinction between men and women. This distinction is considered by them as a social construct. That is why, despite all of the scientific evidence proving how different male and female brains are, many academics still argue that boys play with trucks rather than with dolls because of sexist socialization. And women play with dolls as opposed to trucks because of socialization. Here's, here, here's the end of this article. This is where it's all going and where we live. Since there are, according to many in our culture, no inherent differences between men and women, and they're right about this if that's true, what difference <laughs> could it possibly make whether a man marries a man or a woman? Or whether a woman marries a man or a woman? Or if children have two fathers? or two mothers, or a father and a mother. This is the ocean that we as Christians today swim in. As we come to verse 7, we have seen that He has addressed all Christians to be submissive to the governing authorities. So there's one human institution. And for Christian, if you're a slave or an employee, be submissive in that role to your master or your employer. And we have seen now for three weeks in the institution of marriage, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Now he comes to verse 7 and addresses husbands. And this is the counterpart that complements what we've seen about wives. And at the core, what Peter is doing in addressing us men who are married is he's warning us not to abuse our authority or responsibility over and for our wives. He's saying woe to you if you do. He's saying woe to your relationship with God, your prayer life, if you do. Let's look at it. Verse 7. Live, husbands, live, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, live with, dwell, do marriage with this counterpart, a female, your wife, 
Literally, according to knowledge. It's the Greek word gnosis. Get knowledge. Consider her. Think about what it is to be a man and for her to be a woman and do life with her accordingly, according to knowledge. Now, he's not specific about, okay, what kind of knowledge other than she's not a man, she's a woman. And we're going to see that in, in, in a minute because he makes that clear. But it seems to me he's saying to us men, whatever knowledge you could get, that will help you lead in marriage better. That's what he seems to be saying. So, we've seen a lot of stuff in Scripture last few weeks. I, I, I can't preclude. It, it seems to be he's including. Do this according to knowledge. The knowledge of God about male and female. The knowledge of God about marriage. The knowledge of God about what it represents. The knowledge of God about what He commands you to do, right? And I think it also means know her. Know your, not that other person's, your unique wife. What makes her tick? What what are her strengths, her weaknesses, emotionally, physically, her her giftings? And it seems that the more that we accumulate and learn and have knowledge of her, we will do our leading better as husbands. So, in general, live with your wives according to knowledge. Uh, gain knowledge by studying Scripture. And secondly, by studying your wife. That's what I think that he's getting at. But to really understand the micro specifics, like my wife, she's not another human being, she is that particular one. But to neglect the generalities of her as a woman first is not really smart in understanding her as an individual. To understand the generalities of the difference between what a man is and what a woman is is really important to now, this is where my wife fits individually in that. In other words, know the difference, men, and this is good for you women also, the difference between a man and a woman in the way God has created us, the generalities that we learn. That's called wisdom. That's why there have been books written like by Dr. Dobson and his wife, what every wife wished her husband knew about. Women doesn't come naturally. Men. Or Larry Crabb's book, Men and women know the difference. Because the differences are huge. And they're real. That's why it may still be a bestseller. And you all know it whether you ever read the book because it became so popular because the obvious seems to always sell well. And it's not a Christian book. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. That's why they're there. Because we're so vastly different. It's mind-blowing how we men can be so dumb, clueless. 
Yeah, we see a distinction. I married a woman. I'm heterosexual. No problem. She's pretty. Other than that, just treat her as a man. You do that long enough, you destroy your marriage. Unless you grow, unless you learn. That means what Peter says. Do this marriage according to knowledge. Learn. Change. Grow in every area of life. I mean, the simplest first one is, if you noticed in marriage that the bedroom, you don't approach that the same way as a man and a woman. You know, the woman is dumbfounded how you could have not had a, 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 a functional, intimate conversation in weeks. But you're ready to go to the bedroom in a drop of a hat. Doesn't make any sense to her. Okay. And we don't understand why we got to work. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> okay. We are different. Now, Peter then goes on and he gets more specific about wives, the ones we live with. He says, Live with your wives in an understanding, that's the ESV's way of translating according to knowledge, in an understand something, an understanding, knowledgeable way. Specifically, as with a weaker vessel. Since she's a woman. It's kind of how he does it in the Greek. In other words, weaker vessel is connected to... She's she's not masculine. She's feminine. She's different. He doesn't specify how she's weaker other than she's not a man. She's a woman. And the bottom line is he's saying this. Husbands, you do have a responsibility to lead. And she does too. Be submissive. He's warning. Do not use or take any of those things that may be her weaknesses as a woman and take advantage of it for your own selfish gain. That's his point. Weakness physically? Well, I think that's one obvious one. History is filled with physical and sexual abuse in marriage. The other is, in the context here, Peter has been talking about the authority of the man in the marriage, the submissive role of the woman. So, there's a weaker role, if you want to put it that way, just like there is. A coach has all the authority over the players on a team. They're equal in personhood, etc. Or okay, an employer over an employee. And he's saying to us men, do not abuse that. And understand the roles. Her femininity and your responsibility over her for her and consider according to knowledge how you should lead her. Not abuse her. Peter's saying, instead of misusing your authority for selfish ends, use it to honor and to respect her. You see that? Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, value toward her as the woman. See, 
her strengths like intuitiveness, sensitivity to relationships can really help us husbands. She's a woman. She's got strengths where we're really weak. But that also means that strength means she may get damaged in conflict much easier than we do. Don't take her weakness and not consider it and say, ooh, I need to love my wife better instead of run her over. This is where knowledge comes in. Men and women were so different. In general, I know there's, that means there's always exceptions, okay? But in general, men show their affections to other men very differently than a woman would to a woman or she would to anybody else. If, if we husbands who, who do show our affections by ridicule, hey, ugly, and we did that to our wife, we would start World War III. See, Sean's not here. But see, when he, I'm, I'm just dead serious. When he, we're sitting at a home group, and it's an intense conversation of God. And he finds the place to insert a balding joke on me. It doesn't repel me. It, I know that means he has affection for me. Now he would, if you're here, he'd say, "No, I don't." Okay. I mean, and that's why I have you many. Of, I've had three thousand four hundred seventy-eight back hair jokes for Sergio. Okay. <laughs> We're, but to know the differences is really important. I remember years ago sitting on a beach, my wife, another guy, his wife, having an intense conversation with him as we're trying to come to terms. After the wife thought our relationship was over. It was the furthest thing from our minds. Because women don't have discussions normally like that unless they're ready to end the relationship with their lady friends. Many of you know that my uh, and a high school baseball coach, the legendary John Stevenson, died this last year. And, it, and so it brought back a lot of memories for lots of us and old newspaper articles and everything on the Internet. And some of you know that picture of Coach Stevenson in the locker room with my CIF championship team, which is in the paper again. And I went back and read that article, and that's what reminded me of what he evidently said. I can't remember from my memory, but the paper tells me what he told us. And he says to us after we just won the championship standing in Angel Stadium's locker room. The reason I yelled at you guys so much is because I knew you had this talent in you. And boy, he yelled, and he wasn't your friend when you played for him. And thank God. But that would have never worked for a girl's high school softball team. We're different. That was a man... Coaching, leading young men. That's why Paul, I think, says to men. What do you, you got to say to us, Paul, in Colossians 3.19? Husbands, love your wives. And do not be harsh with them. They're not another guy. And so... Peter's saying, guys were called to learn about women. 
And in particular, study your unique wife. And thus, dwell with her, lead her with that knowledge. Now, don't miss the punch that he now gives, having set that up. Because here's his main point. Live with her. Lead her. You have a responsibility and an authority. You are the head of your wife. And do it knowing she is a joint heir of salvation. Quote, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you. Literally, joint, co-equal heirs, inheritors of the grace of life. There's an assumption here. Peter's assuming here that this Christian husband has a Christian wife. And by the term heirs, he means what he's already said. Are you a believer? Have you come to Christ? He's assuming your wife has. That means for her as well as you, Christian, for her also there is an inheritance laid up in heaven, undefiled, imperishable, reserved. Treat her that way. He's saying, in all of this leading now, and showing her honor as the weaker vessel, and doing all this according to knowledge, the main thing is not, okay, as a weaker vessel, the main thing is, as an equal heir. That's his point. She, that woman you live with, is before she's your wife, because she's a believer, she's a daughter of your Heavenly Father. He's saying, husbands, you better treat her that way. Now, two weeks ago, we went to Ephesians chapter 5, and we saw there that the mystery and the ultimate purpose of marriage there was to picture, to reflect the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, I'm not going to go there for that main purpose, but that's undergirding this. But here's the thing that comes out of it, and it's the exact thing that Peter, I mean, that Paul draws out of it for us women and men. Start with verse 22. Ephesians 5, if you're there. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and is Himself its Savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Verse 27. So that 
He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing in order that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. When you get hit with a hammer on the thumb, don't like it. Don't do that to your wife. No, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of His body. And so, the Apostle Paul addresses us husbands and he says, Husband, here is the essence of your headship in your marriage. Love your wives just as Jesus loved the church. The mystery that that, that marriage refers to Christ in the church, which he's going to make this main point there in Ephesians 5. I'm referring to Christ in the church. Marriage exists because Christ exists first before the foundation of the world is a lamb, and God created marriage to demonstrate it. Okay, That's where he goes with this. But because of that reality, that that's what marriage refers to, it means that the roles of the male and the female in marriage, of authority and submission, headship and submission, they are not arbitrarily assigned. They are rooted in the distinctive roles of Christ in His authority and the church submitting to Him. And that's why in verse 24, wives are to key off of the church's submission to Christ. And in verse 25, Husbands are to key off of Christ's headship over the church, defined as He laid down His life because of His love for those who are His bride. We have seen sin, the fall of mankind, did not create headship and submission in marriage. God created it before the fall, but the fall and sin has wrecked it, has corrupted it, and has throughout history made it very ugly. But believer, God is after sanctifying you. Male or female, married or unmarried. That means He's after redeeming masculinity and femininity. That means He's after redeeming, correcting male headship in marriage. And the wife's happy submission. 
And therefore, what is crystal clear in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Peter 3 is that leadership in marriage, headship in marriage, does not mean the right to command and to control. It means the responsibility to lead and to love like Jesus who laid down His life for His bride. And a wife's submission in marriage, biblically, is it's not slavish. I'm a slave. I guess i got to do it. But it's free and it's willing. It's not out of fear. Peter makes that clear. If you do good and are not frightened by any fear, it's not this fearful submission. It's this happy, inward disposition of a gentle and a quiet spirit that flows out of her femininity, being sanctified and renewed in her hope in God. That's what we're hearing these last four weeks. I love Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live. I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. What? Okay, we, we got favorite verses. That's just precious to my heart and my soul. Or, or Romans 8.28. Everything's falling apart. For we know something. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. Wait a minute. I, I, I love Him. And who are called according to His purpose. That's, I, can, I can bank on that. I can rest on that. You ever find verses of the Bible that are very helpful to your walk? I want to say, let this in Ephesians 5, men, be that. Ephesians 5 to the husbands can really be a powerful tool in your sanctification. I remember, gosh, what is Michael? He's almost nine. Probably about nine years ago when my wife was pregnant with Michael. This it was. I still can't figure this out. It was bizarre. But something sinful was happening in my heart as it became hard toward my wife, and thus harsher on a regular basis. Until one day, I can remember sitting there at Teresa's house. She addressed me in tears. And I, there was nothing like you did, you said, other than pregnancy and my sin. And when my wife was in tears, it finally woke me up. And I couldn't figure out anything, any cause, other than sin. And then that caused me to cry out, alone with God, and turn to Ephesians 5. The Bible said to me, love your wife as Jesus loves the church. And all I could do was beg 
God by your spirit. Just break whatever this is. And he did miraculously for me. Let the word of God come. Let Ephesians 5 command to you husbands, be this tool of sanctification to love your wife, which is a reflection of your walk with Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, sin there and ever since is just twisted these roles of male, female, femininity, masculinity, husband and wife. It's twisted this strong, loving leadership to be this manipulative, domineering, controlling husband or lazy, passive husband. It it has twisted this glorious feminine submission that is powerfully strong to be seductive, using sex appeal to manipulate men or to just be insubordinate and blatant about it. But Ephesians chapter 5, wives is the church, husbands as Jesus. It prevents these abuses. Well, but, but there's abuses all over in the name of Christianity. I know. And so when I do it, or you do it, it's not following the Bible. It's not following authority and submission that is talked about in the Bible. It is demonstrating our sin using Scripture as Satan uses Scripture. Dr. James Dobson now before we close, we're going to address this more clearly to help us men. Yes, feel like, oh, woe is me, but then we have a sanctifier. Dr. Dobson, I think, is dead on when he wrote, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the, church, if the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, says Dr. Dobson, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. Now what I'm going to do here for probably six, seven minutes, I'm taking the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and the most, I think, pertinent quotes I can get out of there, and, and to put them together on defining leadership or at its core, the essence of masculinity, which is true whether you're single or married. 
Okay, so that's what I'm doing. But I may be paraphrasing somewhat as I do as I do this, okay? As I draw from the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. As we saw last week, I, w- I will give the definition again from that book, which is worth buying back there on the table. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent, it means loving the other for their good, a, of benevolent responsibility to lead, to provide for and to protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. So now, here's the quotes that help unpack each word of this definition. If a man does not feel this sense of benevolence, here's the definition. Mature masculinity is a sense. The word sense is really important here. If a man does not feel this sense of benevolent responsibility toward women to lead, to provide, and to protect, then his masculinity is immature, incomplete, and distorted. But by mature, it means that it is in the process of growing out of sinful distortions and limitations and finding its true nature as a form of love and not of self-exertion. He must not only be responsible, but he must sense or feel that he is. If a man doesn't, then to that extent he's not mature. His word, the word sense means that a man can be mature in his masculinity even when he is in a place where there is no possibility of relating to women. Like in combat or at sea or in prison. Because this sense of, it means it affects the way he views or talks about women when they are not around. This word sense also implies that a man may not be physically able to provide for or to protect his family. And yet, he can still be mature in his masculinity. Let me just pause here because this sense. Uh, Where I used to teach at a Bible college, the academic dean, Skip Hawks, was wheelchair-bound, no use of his legs at all, some use of his arms, electrical wheelchair. He married to Anne, had one kid. Who's locking the doors at night? Who would get up and look for the burglar? She would. This is one masculine man. My relationship with him, it just exuded he didn't lose any of his masculinity. He was very strongly masculine. I continue to quote, She, the woman, she may end up the maid, main breadwinner. She may check for burglars at night, but it is not easy for the man. But if 
under God, He keeps that sense of loving responsibility, even without physical ability, He won't lose His masculinity. When there is no bread on the table, it is the man who should feel the main responsibility to get it there. It does not mean his wife cannot help by earning money. She may do all the bread winning in cases where he's injured or, or sick, etc. But a man will feel his personhood compromised if he, through sloth, or folly, or a lack of self-discipline becomes dependent over the long haul. Not necessarily through graduate school and stuff. Okay, Good. A man's thought is not that a woman is weak, but it's that she's a woman. See, women and children, who knows nowadays, but through most of history, women and children are put in the lifeboats first. Not because it's assumed that men swim better, but because there's a deep sense of honorable fitness to it. It belongs to masculinity to accept danger in order to protect women. Whether she's six foot five and huge muscles or four foot eight, it doesn't matter. She's a woman. Note, let me just so so hear this now in light of what I'm going to read in the last four weeks. Women are weaker in some ways. And men are weaker. In some ways. Women are smarter than men in some ways. And and men are smarter in other ways. Men are more easily, excuse me, women are more easily frightened in some kind of circumstances. And men are more easily frightened in other kinds of circumstances. Honey, we need to talk. (laughs) And all the men know exactly what I'm talking about. God intends for all the weaknesses that are characteristically masculine to call forth and to highlight women's strengths. And God intends for all the weaknesses that are characteristically feminine to call forth and highlight Man's strengths. So let me close with about six bullet points. I mean, close from the book, okay? Mature masculine leadership does not, therefore, demand to be served, but it is the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of women. Mature masculinity does not assume the authority of Christ. Over the woman. It advocates the authority of Jesus over her. It does not have to initiate every action. No, but it feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. 
Devotions, child discipline, finances, frugality, church going, on and on. They're all ultimately His responsibility. Mature masculinity accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements between a husband and a wife. But it does not presume to use it in every instance. In fact, it may surrender his own preference for his wife's when there is no moral issue at stake. Mature masculinity expresses its leadership in romantic sexual relationship by communicating an aura of strong and tender pursuit. It expresses itself in a family by taking the initiative in disciplining the children when both parents are present and a family standard has been broken. It is sensitive Mature masculinity is sensitive to cultural expressions of masculinity. And it adapts to them when there is no sin involved in that cultural expression. It adapts to, this is what men wear in order to communicate to a woman that he would like to relate to her as a man. Let me just say something. This become, that's the statement is becoming more and more important in our day. Because our culture is purposefully getting, how do I say, androgyny? Did I say that correctly? That's where it's driven. This idea that there's no such thing as male and female. There's humans. And you're seeing it in everything. Not this crazy quotes that are going on legally in our states, but in dress and everything else. I mean, I'm, I'm, I was watching this week a news program, and there was a woman on this panel. I, I can't remember. I wish I would have taped it and then quoted it. But it was clear. She didn't have kids yet, which became clear. And the idea to speak about humans really for her, of, of boys and girls, was, it bothered her. Just, they're humans! And this is what, she learned this. She didn't, this is not natural. You learned it in the university. And, and I could, it was mind-boggling that she was pushing this and those listening or having dialogue with her also just their minds were blown. See, uh, there's no such thing. It's just a human Go ahead, shut your eyes and try to think about your identity as just human, as a part to a male human or a female human. It doesn't work. Okay. Where was I? We're almost done here, okay? A man will want to dress what that culture may say. I mean, so you could be in a culture, guys, got it? A kilt can be very masculine. Okay, got it? This is the point. Cultures do change. They're communicating something. So, but a man wants to relate to his wife or women, depending on differing relationships. I don't know you, but let me hold the door for you. I'm a man. He wants to relate to her that way. And so it has to do with the clothing, the hair, the manners of those particular cultures, etc. And finally, mature masculinity recognizes that the call to leadership is a call to repentance and humility and to risk-taking. Turn back to First Peter as we close.
Finally, notice the last clause in verse 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers may not be hindered. He's just directly saying that if we husbands live, dwell with, do marriage, do leadership with our wives in such a way that we honor her as a joint heir, the grace of it, love her as Christ does the church, then our prayers won't be hindered. Which implies that if we don't, they will. Which makes you ask, because you're a good Bible reader, what does that mean? Who's doing the hindering? The verb to hinder is a passive voice. The subject of hinder is your prayers. Prayers being hindered. Now, sorry, but so you got to ask. Okay, great, great. You ask by whom? He doesn't say directly here. I think it's assumed because when you say your prayers are are being hindered, they're not getting through. Something's wrong here in this relationship with God. You you got to ask hindered. Who's hindering them? And I think the answer is God. I think it's fatherly discipline. What he's saying is that the husband's obedience to the command of verse 7 here, to honor your wife in your role as her head, is directly connected to our walk with Christ. It's reflecting something. Are walking by the Spirit, are living by faith, are trusting in the gospel, in God's promises, in His commands, like First Peter chapter three, verse seven, or Ephesians five. The fruit of the Spirit is coming out of our walk, and disobedience is showing you're not trusting in God. It's reflecting your your relationship in loving your wife is reflective of your relationship with God. Where your heart is. Just notice what he does a few verses later. This is why I'm coming to this conclusion. Verse 12, Peter goes on to say, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but His ears, excuse me, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay. Not loving, not honoring, not valuing our wives as a joint heir, if she's a believer, as a joint heir. And if she's not a believer, then very simple here. As a human being, as a woman who's created in God's image, by not honoring and valuing our wives, if we are professing Christian men, it is an indicator. It's, it's a finger in the wind that says 
This is where your walk with God is. No professing Christian husband should ever presume in their so-called Christianity that they're going down the road of growth and sanctification without a real and an intimate prayer life. And there is no effective prayer life if there is a habitual disobedience to God's Word. There is no real prayer life if constantly saying, I won't honor, I won't love, I won't repent, I won't keep changing, help me God. If He says, forget it, I'm going to go on in my hard-hearted harshness. If we fail to honor her as a joint heir of the grace of life, you do that for long enough. We can say all we want. The Bible lets us know what your prayer life really is like. That's huge. Okay, men, I'm one. Our hope is the gospel. Okay. Do you know the gospel? We deserve eternal damnation for our sin. But the gospel is Christ paid the price for that. Put it away. And if you belong to Him, if you have met Him truly, you have been born again, that means He has before the Father justified you forever. And it means, as we have seen in 1 Peter, Jesus also paid for the process of our sanctification. So when we hear, depending on where we're at in our life, our marriage, and on this road of sanctification, concerning this sermon this morning, you have hope. The hope is Christ has begun it, and He will keep you on the path. Rest your head on Him. As you read 1 Peter 3.7 to you very intimately and personally as we ought in our prayer life, you say, yes. You repent and you trust not in you, but in Christ. As I close, for instance, the Word of God tells us Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved husbands, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Okay, here, here it comes. It feels hard. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously. And this is where your head rests. Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, I beg that You, and it is for any man in here in touch with reality, a miracle for you 
to continually, miraculously, and in a way in which we deserve none of it, change our hearts, our living, our dwelling with our wives, our being the head of our wives and of our family. Work this beauty in us. May we taste here and there in ways we've never dreamed of what it is to care for and to love our wives. Lord Jesus, as you have loved and continue to love us, your church. Amen.